Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 17, Nehemiah chapters 11 and 12. Well, Nehemiah chapters 11 and 12 move us ever closer to the conclusion of what Christians call the Old Testament. And it is enlightening that these chapters revolve around the replanting of the Jewish people in the Holy Lands and the rebuilding of Jerusalem as the capital of God's kingdom on earth. The same chapters have also proved to be problematic for interpreters and commentators uh, commentators on account of these several lists of people and places that dominate these passages. There is sufficient extra-biblical and archaeological evidence to know with a high degree of confidence that what we have are lists that have been compiled from one or more document and source and have been reworked over time. And there are some obvious scribal errors whereby some names are misspelled, some names are accidentally repeated, and others are missing. Therefore, this is a good time to remind you that our modern era literary rules and purposes and styles do not reflect the ancient literary rules and purposes and styles. To read the Bible and to criticize it based on modern Western literary protocols is arrogant, if not foolishness. Rather, the goal needs to be to recover, to understand as best we can the mindset and the worldview of those who wrote the Bible within their era, their culture, and through that try to ascertain what's being communicated and further recognizing, you know, that to their way of thinking, just as in all ages with all authors and editors, as far as they were concerned, they were communicating to people of the same culture as theirs, who spoke in the same language as theirs, who had knowledge of Israel's history and traditions because they too were usually Israelites. Now we're not going to reread chapter 11. You've already read it. The lists are a bit tedious and don't really impart a great deal of information that's pertinent to our study. What is more important is why these lists were left for us. And it seems to me that the purpose of at least the final editor of the book of Nehemiah was to draw a broad picture of the population of Judah, Yehud, as it was called then, in Nehemiah's day at the conclusion of rebuilding the wall and the repopulating of the city of Jerusalem. It is a historical stake in the ground. It's a mile marker along the road. It included how the Jewish people were dispersed, the main families that made up the population, and what villages had been recolonized with the Jews returning from exile. However, it's also clear that something else is at play. From verses 25 through 30, we see a listing of villages populated by Jews, some of which were outside the province of Judah, as it was in Nehemiah's day. 
It was not until later, near the era of Alexander the Great, in the middle of the 4th century BC, that some of these villages were included in a much larger Judah. So obviously, whoever added those village names lived a few decades or more after Nehemiah's time. But why add them at all? When most, any Jew in that editor's day, would have known that these villages weren't there when Nehemiah rebuilt the wall? Well, the answer is probably in the second half of chapter 11, verse 30. There it says, Thus they occupied the territory from Beersheba as far as the Hinnom Valley. See, Beersheba in the south, on the edge of the desert, up to the Hinnom Valley, which is in Jerusalem, is generally the definition of the territory of Judah that was assigned by Moses. So this description of the location of villages and clans in Judah seems to be kind of a mixing of the actual boundaries of Judah, as they were at Nehemiah's time, with the idealized boundaries of Judah as they existed at one time and it's hoped they will once again be. Now what do I mean by that? When you go to Israel today and you speak to all but the most liberal Jews there about the West Bank, they'll correct you and say, oh, you mean Judea and Samaria. In reality, because of the geopolitical correctness of today, Judea and Samaria no longer exist. And you'll never find those names on a map or in a political document. But biblically and spiritually and especially prophetically speaking, what the world today calls the West Bank and where the Palestinians hope to soon call it the state of Palestine is what used to be and will one day again be Judea and Samaria. Land is part of the promised land, God's kingdom on earth. So even today, we can at once speak of Israel in terms of its current political boundaries, its ancient historical boundaries, and its prophetic future boundaries, and we know what we mean by doing so. I'm convinced that this is what the final editor of Nehemiah, in the form we have it in our Bibles, is doing. So, for him, there's no confusion, there's no error, and he's anything but a bad historian. He is merely making a point that is more theological than geographical or demographical. See, this sort of thought process of looking forward towards the ideal while including the historical and the present is spoken of in other parts of the Bible as well. In Nehemiah 11, we read about the editor's faith and trust that even though the conditions as they existed under Nehemiah's uh, rule didn't reveal Israel's former glory as the returning Jews had hoped it would, it was that God was not through with Israel or had his plan for the people in the land even reached its conclusion. The former glory 
would be reestablished, just not yet. And sometimes, because especially in Nehemiah, we can get so bogged down in historical details and records keeping, it's good to pause and to jump into our hot air balloons and gain enough altitude to see this panoramic landscape, horizon to horizon, as God has prepared it. The writer of the New Testament book of Hebrews explains this precise mindset to us in as beautiful an expose on the subject as there is in the Holy Scriptures. So to regain our perspective, I'd like for you to turn to the book of Hebrews and chapter 11. Book of Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to read it all. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it is page 1505. 1505. The book of Hebrews chapter 11. What we have here is really the context for understanding what's going on at this part of Nehemiah. Trusting is being confident of what we hope for. Convinced about things we do not see. It was for this that scripture attested the merit of the people of old. By trusting, we understand that the universe was created through a spoken word of God so that what is seen did not come into being out of existing phenomena. By trusting, Hevel, Abel, offered a greater sacrifice than Cain. Cain. And because of this, he was attested as righteous, with God giving him this testimony on the ground of his gifts. Through having trusted, he still continues to speak even though he's dead. By trusting, Hanok was taken away from this life without seeing death. He was not to be found because God took him away. For he has been attested as having been prior to being taken away well-pleasing to God. And without trusting... It's impossible to be well-pleasing to God because whoever approaches Him must trust that He does exist and that He becomes a rewarder to those who seek Him out. By trusting Noah, after receiving divine warning about things as yet unseen, was filled with holy fear and he built an ark to save his household. Through this trusting... He put the world under condemnation and he received the righteousness that comes from trusting. By trusting, Avraham obeyed. After being called to go out to a place which God would give him as a possession, indeed he went out without knowing where he was going. By trusting, he lived as a temporary resident in the land of promise, as if it were not his, staying in tents with Isaac and Jacob who were to receive what was promised along with him, for he was looking forward to the city with permanent foundations, of which the architect and the builder is God. By trusting, he received potency to father a child, even when he was past the age for it, as was Sarah herself, because he regarded the one who had made the promise as trustworthy. Therefore, this one man who was virtually dead fathered descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, as countless as the grains of sand on the seashore. All these people kept on trusting until they died without receiving what had been promised. 
They had only seen it, welcomed it from a distance, while acknowledging that they were aliens and temporary residents on the earth. For people who speak this way make it clear that they are looking for a fatherland. Now if they were to keep recalling the one they left, they would have an opportunity to return, but as it is they aspire to a better fatherland, a heavenly one. This is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared for them a city. By trusting, Abraham, when he was put to the test, offered up Isaac as a sacrifice. Yes, he offered up his only son, who he who had received the promises to whom it had been said, what is called your seed will be in Yitzhak. For he had concluded that God could even raise people from the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did so receive him. By trusting Yitzhak, Isaac, and his blessing over Yaakov and Esav, Jacob and Esau, made reference to events yet to come. By trusting Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons leaning on his walking stick as he bowed in prayer. By trusting Joseph near the end of his life, remembered about the exodus of the people of Israel, and he gave instructions about what to do with his bones. By trusting, the parents of Moses hid him for three months after he was born because they saw that he was a beautiful child and they weren't afraid of the king's decree. By trusting Moses after he'd grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, he chose being mistreated along with God's people rather than enjoying the passing pleasures of sin. He had come to regard abuse suffered on behalf of the Messiah as greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he kept his eyes fixed on the reward. By trusting, he left Egypt. Not fearing the king's anger, he persevered as one who sees the unseen. By trusting, he obeyed the requirements for the Passover including the smearing of the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By trusting, they walked through the Red Sea as through dry land. When the Egyptians tried to do it, the sea swallowed them up. By trusting, the walls of Jericho fell down after the people had marched around them for seven days. By trusting, Rahab the prostitute welcomed the spies and therefore did not die along with those who were disobedient. What more should I say? There isn't time to tell about Gideon and Barak and Shimshon, that's Samson, Iftak, about David and Samuel and the prophets who, through trusting, conquered kingdoms, work righteousness. They received what was promised, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, had their weaknesses turned to strength. They grew mighty in battle. They routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, resurrected. Other people were stretched on the rack, beaten to death, refusing to be ransomed so that they would gain a better resurrection. Others underwent the trials of being mocked and whipped and chained and imprisoned. They were stone sawed in two. 
murdered by the sword. They went about clothed in sheepskins, goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated, wandering about in deserts and mountains, living in caves, holes in the ground. The world wasn't worthy of them. All of these had their merit attested because of their trusting. Nevertheless, they did not receive what had been promised because God had planned something better that would involve us so that only with us would they be brought to the goal. Here we are reminded that the greatest Bible heroes struggled. And they eventually died, never having seen the full realization promised by God. And yet, firmly believing it, trusting the Lord enough that they took actions that the rest of the world and many of their own brethren often found illogical, if not ludicrous. So in our day, when so much of what has been promised by God seems so endangered, and in the current circumstances in some ways seems further away than ever, just know that the prophecies revealed by Ezekiel and Daniel and John and and all the others are our guarantee that these divine promises will come about just as they always have, regardless of what our eyes may tell us. Nehemiah and the returned exiles had accomplished a great deal. And it was, in, it was needed to advance God's purposes. They had repopulated and decimated Judah. They had rebuilt and destroyed Jerusalem as a defensible fortress city. They had reestablished the temple and the priesthood as the center of their spiritual lives, as well as rediscovering and reaffirming the Torah as their standard for living a redeemed life in harmony with God. The results weren't perfect and they weren't complete. They still lived under a pagan king and their homeland wasn't even truly their own. They had also unwittingly incorporated many elements of man-made traditions into their observances and rituals and worship practices that still remained. Yet, they lived with the firm faith that someday the Lord would remedy all of this because He said He would. Just not yet. Let's read Nehemiah chapter 12. Nehemiah chapter 12. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it is page 1147. 1147, Nehemiah chapter 12. These are the Kohanim and the Levi'im, the priests and the Levites, who went up with Zerubbabel, the son of Shaltiel, and Yeshua. Sariah, Yermeyah, Ezra, Amariah, Maluk, Hatush, Shekaniah, Rechum, Merumot, Ido, Gintoi, Achyah, Miamin, Madiah, Bilga, Shemiah, 
Yoyoriv, Yodaya, Salu, Amok, Hilkiah, and Yeriah. These were the leaders of the Kohanim and their kinsmen during the time of Yeshua. The Levites, Yeshua, Benwi, Kadmiel, Sherevyah, Yehuda, and Matanya, who, were, uh, who was in charge of the songs of thanksgiving, he and his kinsmen, with Bakbukyah and Uni, their kinsmen, singing antiphonally with them in the service. Yeshua was the father of Yoyakim. Yoyakim was the father of Eliashiv, and Eliashiv was the father of Yoyada. Yoyada was the father of Yonatan, and Yonatan was the father of Yadwa. In the days of Yoyakim, these were the uh, the Kohanim, the priests who were the heads of the father's clans of Seriah, Meriah, of Yermiah, Hananiah, of Ezra, of Meshulam, of Amariah, Yochanan, of Meliku, of Yonatan, of Shivanya, Yosef, of Harim, Adna, of Marayot, uh, Helkai, of Edo, Zechariah, of Ginton, Meshulam, of Achiah, Zikri, of Minyamin, of uh, Moadiah, Piltai, of Bilgai, Shamwa, of Shemiah, Yonatan, of Yoyariv, Matnai, of Yeriah, Uzi, of Salai, Kalai, of Amok, Ever, of Hilkiah, Hashaviah, of Yeriah, Nathaniel. And as for the Levites, the heads of fathers' clans in the days of El Yashib, Yoyadah, Yochanan, and Yadua were recorded, and also the priests up to the reign of Daryavesh the Persian. It's Darius. The descendants of Levi, who were the heads of fathers' clans, were recorded in the annals until the days of Yochanan, the grandson of El Yashiv. The chiefs of the Levites were Hashaviah, Sherevyah, and Yeshua, the son of Kadmiel, with their kinsmen in an antiphonal choir to praise and give thanks, in accordance with the order of David, the man of God, choir opposite choir. Matanyah, Bakbukyah, Ovadyah, Meshulam, Talmon, and Akuv were the gatekeepers who guarded the supplies, uh, and they kept the, at the kept at the gates. This was in the days of Yoyakim, the son of Yeshua, the son of Yotzadak, and in the days of uh, Nehemiah, the governor, and Ezra, the Kohen and Torah teacher. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites from wherever they had settled to bring them to Jerusalem and celebrate the dedication with hymns of thanksgiving, with songs accompanied with cymbals, lutes, and lyres. The trained singers assembled together with the area surrounded uh, the area around Jerusalem, the villages of the uh, uh, Natofati, Beit Gilgal, and the region of Geba and Asmavet. For the singers had built villages for themselves all around Jerusalem. The priests and the Levites first purified themselves. Then they purified the people and the gates and the wall. And after that I brought the leaders of Judah up unto the wall and appointed two large choirs to give thanks and to walk in procession. One went to the right on the wall towards the dung gate. And after them went uh, Hoshea and half of the leaders of Judah, together with Azariah, Ezra, Meshalam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Yermiah. 
And with them were some of the sons of the priests carrying trumpets, namely Zechariah, the son of Yonatan, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Matanya, the son of Michiah, the son of Zakur, the son of Asaph, and his kinsmen, Shemaiah, Azarel, Milalai, Gilalai, Ma'ai, Nataniel, Yehuda, and Hanani, who had the musical instruments of David, the man of God. Ezra, the Torah teacher, led them. At the fountain gate, they went up straight ahead to the steps of the city of David, where the wall goes up and passed above the house of David and went on to the water gate on the east. The other Thanksgiving choir, consisting of half the people, walked on the wall to meet them with myself following. They went above the tower of the furnaces to the broad wall, above the Ephraim gate, by the gate to the old city, to the fish gate, the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred as far as the sheep gate, and halted at the prison gate. Thus stood the two choirs of those giving thanks in the house of God with myself and half the leaders with me. The priests there included Eliakim, Maaseah, Minyamin, Michiah, Elioenai, Zechariah, and Hananiah carrying trumpets. Also Maaseah, Shemiah, Elazar, Uzi, Yochanan, Malkiah, Elam, and Ezer. The singer sang loudly, directed by Yezerachiah. With joy, they offered great sacrifices that day, for God had made them celebrate with great joy. The women and children too rejoiced, so that the celebrating in Jerusalem could be heard far off. At that time, men were appointed to be in charge of the storerooms for supplies, contributions, first fruits, and tents, and to gather into them from the fields belonging to the cities the portions prescribed by the Torah for the priests and the Levites. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who took their position, carrying out the duties of their God and the duties of purification, as also did the singers and gatekeepers, in accordance with the order of David and of Shlomo, Solomon, his son. For back in the days of David and Asaph, there had been leaders for those singing the songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. So in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of uh, Nehemiah, Nehemiah, all Israel gave portions to the singers and gatekeepers as required daily. They set aside a portion for the Levites who in turn set aside a portion for the descendants of Aaron. This chapter is divided into two parts. Verses 1 through 25 that are lists of priests and Levites, and then from verse 26 to the end that deals with the dedication of the walls of Jerusalem. And like chapter 11, there are lots of issues with these lists. And without doubt, these lists have been edited over time, and scribal errors have been introduced, and some ordering changed to make a point that the recent the most recent editor sought to make. Now trying to ascertain his point, that's the challenge. And I must say there is no consensus to what that might be. Now we're going to have to get a little technical here, but first I want to summarize these lists before we look at a few de- just a few details about them. The lists break down like this. Verses 1 through 9 are a list of priests and Levites that returned to Judah with Zerubbabel in 538 B.C. Verses 10 and 11 are a list of high priests that begins about 538 B.C. and then it continues to sometime after 400 B.C. Verses 12 through 21 are a list of common priests 
in the time of the high priest Yoyakim, who held that office sometime during the time of Nehemiah and Ezra. And then verses 22 through 26 are a list of common Levites during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah and for some years following them. Now even though it might seem otherwise, these lists are less about individual names of people and more about the names of families and clans. See, because priests and Levites were positions that were inherited. If you weren't a Levite from the tribe of Levi, you couldn't be appointed to a Levite position. If you weren't from a certain clan of Levites, you couldn't be appointed as a priest. And what exact role you played in temple operations, singer, gatekeeper, musician, song leader, junior priest, senior priest, so on, this all depended on which specific clan of Levites you belonged to. Now, this can be especially hard for modern Westerners to follow because we all have first and last names. And we use our last names to help us follow our heritage. Our first names are then used to identify us more specifically. That is not how it was among the Hebrews in the biblical days. Names generally consisted of a single name. There was no first and last name. Sometimes to help a little bit, a name would be followed by the son of so-and-so to better identify an individual uh, to a clan or a family. But even then, the term son, ben, can mean a son or a grandson. And in a few cases, it can simply identify someone just generally to a family and it has nothing to do with actual parents or grandparents. And of course, names aren't exclusive. There can be many Jonathans or Yeshua's or Joseph's. And sometimes they are indicative of the founding family of the clan or the tribe and sometimes they belong to another clan or tribe and the name has no family significance. That is part of the reason for so much disagreement in modern scholarship over biblical lists of names. But understand that precision was never the goal of the ancient writers. There was usually some theological principle or a right or a privilege that belonged to members of a certain family that was being demonstrated. A good example of that is Christ's genealogy that we find in the New Testament Gospels. There are obviously skipped generations. But the goal is not precision to fully recount every single generation of Yeshua's ancestors, but rather it is to connect him back to the royal line of David, however we manage to get there, and then, of course, to Abraham, the father of the Hebrews. That's the goal. So here in Nehemiah 12, we have to jump back aboard our hot air balloons, get back to our panoramic view, and then go back in time. And remember that almost two centuries earlier, the priesthood and temple operations had come to an end because Nebuchadnezzar's, Nebuchadnezzar's armies had destroyed the temple. 
So the priests and the Levites were out of a job. And they would be for three quarters of a century. The Jews were hauled off to Babylon. And there they found themselves in a serious cultural and spiritual dilemma. Without the temple and the priesthood, they couldn't purify themselves from defilement. They couldn't atone for their sins. They couldn't observe the the required biblical festivals. They couldn't properly observe Shabbat. They couldn't eat strictly biblically kosher. They didn't have the priests and the Levites to teach them the Torah. And most laws couldn't be followed in their current circumstances, even had they wanted to follow them. See, the result of their situation was the invention of a number of man-made customs and traditions that hoped to cope with the problem in some alternative fashion. Then when Persia conquered Babylon and the Jews were emancipated, they found freedom of movement and they spread out all over the Persian Empire. They willingly adopted many Persian ways and they began to forget their former Jewish ways. And there was a substantial amount of intermarriage between Jews and various peoples of the Persian Empire. Even the priests and the Levites participated in this interbreeding. The result was that many priests and Levites had their Hebrew heritages greatly diluted with Gentile blood. And some of them even lost track of their family records that provided the needed proof of their privileged identity as priests and Levites. Why? Because such an identity wasn't seen as valuable any longer. Because being a priest or a Levite offered no use or real benefit to them as long as they were in exile or even living freely in a foreign land. It is clear that the lists of Nehemiah chapter 11 were taken mostly from the lists of Ezra chapter 2. And the list of Ezra chapter 2 deals with the initial wave of Jewish returnees from Babylon to Judah. Ezra chapter 2, in addition to listing the priests and the Levites that were able to establish their legitimacy, also tells us this, starting in verse 59. The following went up from Tel Melah, Tel Harsha, Keruv, Adon, and Emer. But they could not state which father's clan they or their children belonged to, so it was not clear whether they were from Israel. Descendants of Deliad, descendants of Toviah, descendants of Nakoda, uh, 652 of the descendants of the Kohanim. Descendants of Havayah, descendants of Hakots, and descendants of Barzillai, who took a wife from the daughters of Barzillai, the Gilati, and was named after them. These tried to locate their genealogical records, but they weren't found. Therefore, they were considered defiled. They were not allowed to serve as priests. So, thus try as they might, many who claimed to be priests and Levites, and may well have been, they had lost their genealogical records and they were disqualified. But it seems that there's a level of hypocrisy going on here. Since the religion the Jews had been practicing for the last many decades in Babylon and then Persia was completely corrupted with paganism and some new man-made traditions. They weren't following the Torah. Then all of a sudden, precise genealogy matters? Yes, it does. 
because the goal was now to turn from their sin to disavow those pagan influences to pay attention to God's laws and rules regarding who could serve him at the temple that would soon be reconstructed so the context for the lists of Nehemiah 11 and then 12 is that the editor wanted to demonstrate that the proper and authorized families and clans of Levites and priests had been identified They'd been properly vetted, and in view of the spiritual importance of their privileged positions, they were acting in strict accordance with the law of Moses. In fact, the determination to do this correctly even led to an infamous event that we read about back in Ezra chapter 10. In Ezra chapter 10, starting at verse 1, we read this. While Ezra was praying and making confession weeping and prostrated before the house of God. A huge crowd of Israel's men, women, and children gathered around him, and the people were weeping bitterly. Shekaniah, the son of Yechiel, one of the descendants of Elam, spoke up and said to Ezra, We have acted treacherously towards our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples of the land. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. We should make a covenant with our God to send away all these wives along with their children in obedience to the advice of Adonai and of those who tremble at the commandments of our God. Let us act in accordance with the Torah. Stand up and do your duty for we're with you. Take courage and do it. So Ezra stood up and he made the chief priests, the Levites, and all Israel swear that they would act according to what had been said and they took the oath. So, even the priests and the Levites, the leaders of the religious sphere of Israel, had taken pagan wives and had children with them. That means that had those marriages and the resulting children been accepted as legitimate, and up to now they'd been seen as normal and good unions, the sons would have become in line to be the next generation of priests and Levite temple workers. So the decision was made among the Jews to dissolve the marriages and to send away the women and their children who were the product of those unions. Again, this was largely to assure that the continuing line of priests and Levites that by God's commandment had to come from the various clans of the tribe of Levi were pure-blooded enough to legitimately serve in the temple. This was not racial bigotry. It was not even political. It was making right a wrong that many Jews had committed. And many priests and Levites had done right along with them. The result was horrific. It was painful. And it was patently unfair to those women and those children especially. But this wasn't God's fault. It's what you find at the end of a long road of sin. Pain and calamity. And if one wants to begin to undo all the wrongs committed before God, there will be suffering and often collateral damage to generally innocent parties. That is the high price of sin and then sincere repentance. 
So since Nehemiah 12 is bringing us now near to the end of the book of Nehemiah and the record of the restoration of the Jewish people to Judah, the editor is going to great lengths to show that the Jewish people had committed themselves to endure the pain and and suffering the consequence of their sins, understanding there was no other path to true repentance without it. God was not harming them. The harm was self-inflicted. But now, they were finally emerging to the other side. Finally, the suffering and the disruption of big changes in their behavior and in their lifestyle was paying off. And that is what we see next with the dedication ceremony that takes place atop the newly constructed wall surrounding and protecting the holy city of Jerusalem. Verse 26 concludes this section of the lists with this most important remark. This was in the days of Yoyakim, the son of Yeshua, the son of Yotzadak, and in the days of Nehemiah the governor and of Ezra the priest and Torah teacher. So all through the time that we've read so far from Nehemiah chapters 1 through 12, Nehemiah and Ezra were contemporaries, each for fulfilling their own God-given roles. Ezra was the priest and the Torah teacher, meaning that he was the supervisor of the priesthood, even above the high priest Yeshua and then his son, the next high priest, Yoyakim. Ezra did not seem to try to interject himself in the secular work of rebuilding the walls in the city of Jerusalem that was being led by Nehemiah. And there is no evidence that Nehemiah, even as the supreme governor of the province of Judah, attempted to interfere in any way with Ezra and the temple operations. Things were working largely the way they should have. That in itself is a first not witnessed by the Jewish people in a very long time. Starting in verse 27, the subject changes to preparing for the wall dedication ceremony. And the complete Jewish Bible here obscures a very interesting phrase that I want to highlight. Where we find the words in our complete Jewish Bible, at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites from wherever they had settled to bring them to Jerusalem and celebrate the dedication with hymns of thanksgiving. The last few words that says, celebrate the dedication with hymns, I want you to listen to these words in Hebrew, is Hanukkah ve Simcha. Hanukkah ve Simcha. That's correct. We find the word Hanukkah here because it simply means dedication. And the annual celebration of Hanukkah that would come a couple of centuries after Nehemiah is remembering the dedication, or better, rededication, of the Jerusalem temple to Jehovah after years of forced worship and sacrifice to pagan gods, pagan gods that was occurring there. The next word many of you will recognize is simcha. Simcha. It means joy or gladness. And we know this term best when we speak of simcha Torah or the joyful celebration that immediately follows the end of the yearly reading cycle through the five books of Moses, the Torah. 
So verse 27 ought to read, At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites from wherever they had settled to bring them to Jerusalem and celebrate the dedication with joy. And we find that in these final verses of chapter 12, the theme is unadulterated joy. And this is especially emphasized in verse 43. Nehemiah 12.43 With joy they offered great sacrifices that day, for God had made them celebrate with great joy. The women and the children too rejoiced so that the celebrating in Jerusalem could be heard far off. So the first part of the preparation for the wall dedication was to go out and gather the Levites from where they lived on the outskirts of Jerusalem in order that they participate. The Levites and priests typically operated in courses. That is, they were divided into groups. And each group, of course, had an opportunity to serve at the temple in a set rotation. Now obviously, only the course that was serving at the time of the dedication ceremony would have normally been in Jerusalem. So it was necessary to go and tell all Levites that they were to attend and to participate. Verse 28 makes it clear that some Levites, especially the singers, had moved a bit further away from Jerusalem and they had become farmers. This is not an indication of anything wrong. They were expected to be productive in other ways since they only occasionally served at the temple. The location of these areas of, of uh, uh, Nethophati, Beit uh, Hagigal, uh, Geba, Azmeth aren't entirely certain. But it's thought that these places are generally located in the Jordan Valley, well outside Jerusalem, varying anywhere from 12 or 13 to as much as 18 to 20 miles away. Now, since this was to be a holy celebration, verse 30 explains that the priests and the Levites purified themselves. And the people, they purified them as well, the people, the Am, meaning the common Jews of the land, and they purified the wall itself. Now, nothing is said about how this purification was accomplished. Most commentators surmise that some unspecified offering of sacrifices on the altar must have been the means of purification, but I can't accept that. This was not about atonement. This was about, specifically about, purification. Purification invariably involves water. Maim haim, living water, not the blood sacrifices of animals. Now, once gathered and purified, everyone that was to participate in the uh, the procession were divided into two groups. And uh, each group would march in opposite directions. Take a look at this chart up here. Beginning in verse 31, we see that Nehemiah himself has begun to narrate because the first words are, Then I made the leaders of Judah ascend the wall. So we are reading from Nehemiah's own memoirs. And Nehemiah says he's leading. But now once atop the wall, the group splits. One group goes to the left, the other goes to the right, and the group going right is going to be led by a fellow named Hoshea. They headed in the direction of the Dung Gate. Now, this diagram here represents a pretty good map of the route of the two processions. And the processions consisted of choirs and musicians and priests blowing trumpets. Now, these trumpets were not shofars, but rather hatsotzerah. Hatsotzerah. These are the famous silver trumpets. 
which are reserved only for Levites and priests to blow. Verse 37 is kind of pretty interesting in that once they reached a certain point called the fountain gate, apparently they had to leave the wall. And they had to go down and then rejoin it somewhere around where David's house was traditionally located. Now no doubt this is because where the wall came together, they were at two different levels. And sometime back we read uh, about how they decided to abandon some parts of the old wall and to create brand new sections. This was one of those cases. Verse 38 now explains the route of the second group going in the opposite direction of the first group. They went north and east. And here we get a better understanding of the order of the procession. The choir led the way, followed by folks of varying ranks. Now verse 40 indicates that after their march around the wall, these two groups came down and they met up at the temple. There was more music and singing. Sacrifices were now offered. But what must also be noticed is the repetition of the word joy. In fact, the joy, we're told, is so loud it could have been heard a long way off. These were definitely not the frozen chosen. They were loud, they were passionate about their praise and their worship, and I like that. I want to close our lesson today with this. There are times to be solemn and sober in our worship. And there are times to unashamedly cut loose with exuberance. The final consummation of years of hard work and great hardships to accomplish it had been reached. Jerusalem was now protected by a wall. The destroyed city had regained life. The people proved that as a congregation and with godly leadership, they could perform whatever task the Lord led them into, no matter how daunting it may have seemed in its early stages. We'll conclude chapter 12 next time, and we'll enter the final chapter of Nehemiah.